The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Go Green Radio, brought to you by Covanta Energy. Reduce, reuse, recycle. Rethink renewable energy and energy from waste. This program will help start you thinking about how to protect our world and its important resources. Now here's the host for Go Green Radio, Jill Buck. Welcome to Go Green Radio, everybody. So glad that you could tune in today. We're covering a very important topic, very hot in the news right now. Um, We're going to be talking about the water crisis in Flint, Michigan. And our guest today is just a a superior guest. I mean, really well-versed in water issues. His name is Mark Yagi, and he is the executive director of Waterkeeper Alliance. You can find them, if you open a new tab in your web browser, you can find them at waterkeeper.org. And he's been working on clean water advocacy issues for over 15 years. And we're so glad to have you on Go Green Radio. Welcome, Mark. Hi, Jill. Thank you so much for having me and for the very kind introduction. I'm, I'm happy to well, be here. It's great to have you on, and we appreciate your time in helping us understand what's going on in Flint, and maybe even more importantly, how we might be able to ensure that these kinds of issues don't happen in other areas. But before we dive into the issues surrounding Flint, Michigan, and their recent water contamination issues, I'd like to give you a chance to tell our listeners a bit more about Waterkeeper Alliance. How does your organization work to address local water issues around the world? Well, great. Thank you. I'd love to. We have about 50 years of, of history, so I'm going to give you the, the Cliff Notes version. <laughs> All righty. Essentially, Waterkeeper Alliance is an international movement uniting more than 275 locally-based clean water advocacy organizations around the world and focusing citizen action on issues that affect our waterways from pollution to climate change. Today, we have 277 Water keepers. These can be river keepers, bay keepers, sound keepers, etc. But there are 277 water keepers in 34 countries on six continents, and together they patrol and protect nearly 2.5 million square miles of watershed around the world. And these are water keepers are in China, in India, Nepal, Bangladesh, Kenya, Iraq, Togo, across the United States, Sweden, Australia, South America, and more. So as you can imagine, they come from diverse backgrounds with different languages, different cultures, religions, politics, and legal systems. But these are all advocates that are united in that they believe that everyone has the right to clean water. And they're working to fight for a future where everyone can go down to their local waterway, jump in and have a swim without fear of getting sick, or a future where everyone can go to their local water source, fill up a cup of water, and drink it without fear that they're drinking poisonous toxins or a future where everyone can go to their local river or stream or lake or pond, throw in a line and catch a fish and bring it home and feed it to their family without being afraid that they're going to poison their family with mercury or PCBs. Mm-hmm. Now, our story started in the 1960s, actually 1966, 50 years ago this year, when commercial and recreational fishermen, uh, and many of them uh, 
combat veterans united to save the Hudson River, and they formed the Hudson River Fishermen's Association here in New York, and they recognized that outspoken citizen advocacy, citizen-led advocacy was the way to ensure that our laws are enforced and that their river and the livelihood and health of their families were protected. Those fishermen started Hudson River Keeper, and they took on some of the nation's biggest polluters in one. And while there are you know, issues on the Hudson today and still problems and threats, it's been reborn. It's an icon of ecosystem revitalization. And along the way, those fishermen inspired a whole global movement of clean water advocates that are now, like I said, in 34 countries. I love our it. job is to, and our job at Waterkeeper Alliance is to connect and support those waterkeepers, give them access to resources, training opportunities, make sure they're learning from each other, and to do advocacy with them and on their behalf. Uh, that's that's phenomenal. And what I love about it is that it remains grassrootsy, if that's even a word, um, in terms of you know letting local people work on local water issues, but giving them you know a national or international network to tap into for best practices, like you said, resources, training, and whatnot. Um, what a what a terrific way to to set up an organization and to support um, what you know we'd love to take for granted, but we know we simply can't, and that is clean water. Well, let's dive into what's going on in Flint, Michigan now, because that is just, I think it's blowing the minds of Americans coast to coast that this could happen in 21st century America. How could this tragedy unfold without input from the local community and its citizens? It, well, it's, it is a tragedy, and one of the things that, and it really has implications nationally and internationally, because one of the problems is really an informed citizen, is having an informed citizenry, because so many people don't know where their drinking water comes from. And if you think about it, Jill, aside from air, the only other thing you need to live is water. Mm-hmm. So you need air and water. I mean, you need food and other things, but you can't have food without air and water. And so... Not knowing where the one out of the, one of the two things that you need to survive on comes from is something I think is is a challenging for people, and people really need to understand. People are going to need to understand that political decisions are made every day that jeopardize the quality and quantity of their drinking water, and whether it's cost-cutting measures like in Flint when they switch to using water from the Flint River, or whether it's failing to make infrastructure investments or just basically turning a blind eye to polluters. Um, Unfortunately, we see this type of thing all the time. So unless you have vigilant advocates or groups of people that are going to focus on clean water issues in a community, most of the time these deals and situations are brokered by state administrations and agencies, and it flies under the radar of transparency and really not brought to the public's attention unless it's been uncovered by someone. Mm-hmm. And that's what our water keepers do on their in their local communities. That these are they're those type of advocates. You know, they are the boots on the ground that are making sure that waterways are protected for swimming, drinking, and fishing, and the communities that re- rely on them are safe. Mm-hmm. And holding well, polluters and government agencies accountable. And I think it's it's funny, you know. Just recently, you know, I live in California, and because of the drought, people have just begun to kind of wake up to the fact that. While we're electing, you know, big ticket items like the president and the governor, um, we're also electing water board members and no one pays attention to that. You know, I mean, a lot of people have no idea who the elected representatives are who might serve on a local water board or local water agency. And um, 
I'm hoping that if there's one good thing that could possibly come out of a tragedy like this, it's that people will begin to pay more attention to who's making those decisions and that we can't take it for granted that you know, the people making those decisions are going to follow the law and necessarily have our best interest at heart. In, in speaking about laws, what federal law is the basis for our current efforts to control lead, which is what ended up in Flint's water that can leach from our water pipes? Well, and you're, you're 100% you're correct in that we, we do have the laws on the books that can protect us, but they need to be enforced. And that's a problem when campaign contributions get out of control and the officials are more beholden to the polluter than to the public that they were elected to represent. And those laws, as you mentioned, there are laws on the books. That, there are two main laws that we use a lot for keeping water clean in the U.S. And I think both of them are relevant here. One is the Clean Water Act, and the other is the Safe Drinking Water Act. And the Clean Water Act is really about limiting what we, what kind of pollution we put into our nation's water bodies and it has provisions for restoring water bodies that fail to meet certain standards. And then the Safe Drinking Water Act is really about regulating our, our country's public water systems. And that would be the Safe Drinking Water Act is really the basis for what's in those lead pipes and what's coming out of the faucet in Flint, Michigan, and other places. The situation in Flint really seems to involve a failure on both sides of that equation, both the Clean Water Act and the Safe Drinking Water Act, because you had, from what I've been reading and learning about it, is that the Flint River has been impaired for decades because of industrial pollution from uh, farm runoff and from sewage, and that made the Flint River incredibly dirty and polluted. So you have a Clean Water Act failure there for failing to enforce the Clean Water Act and, and allowing that amount of pollution to get into the waterway. And then you've got a failure on the other side with the the um, old pipes and the infrastructure and just not delivering safe water to the people. Mm -hmm. Well, in the case of the Flint water crisis, in your opinion, Mark, who should be held accountable for the harm that's been done to this community? I think there's plenty of blame to be spread around. It seems, though, that the greatest amount of culpability lies with the state of Michigan. And uh, there's certainly issues with with local and, and, and federal issues, but it seems mostly to be at the state. And that's a situation that's a nationwide problem. There's been decades of inadequate replacement and repair of aging water infrastructure, and that cuts across uh, across the country. There are water, water lines that need to be replaced. I think they, there are approximately three to six million miles of lead pipes across the country. So think about all wow. the ones in Flint, and then there's three to six million miles more around the country that are vulnerable to similar similar dangers. That's unbelievable. And and actually, you know, with my nonprofit organization, the Go Green Initiative, um, you know, we work with schools on a number of environmental issues. And I've been working in some environmental justice communities very closely the last couple of years. And one of the things that breaks my heart is that, you know, because there are lead pipes um, in these old schools that have not been replaced, in many cases, in neighborhoods where there is extreme poverty, families are spending and schools are spending an unbelievable amount of money 
um, both to purchase bottled water and, and other bottled beverages for the kids, um, and also to dispose of those, um, whether it's through recycling, but it's not always recycling. It's sometimes landfilling. We're working to help them with some of those. But, you know, when when areas like, you know, those types of low-income communities cannot trust their public water and hence have to spend an egregious amount for that same amount of water in a bottle that came from somewhere else, it's, um, it's really unsettling. Um, and right. go right ahead. You were going to say... Oh, sorry. I, yeah, I, it's a crime, I think. Because you're taking, you're taking a child. A child is born into this world with all sorts of potential. And then they, because of a failure at the state level and a failure to invest in infrastructure and a failure to enforce the law, they're drinking lead. And that is going to disrupt their cognitive ability. And they aren't going to be able to achieve the potential that they could have achieved. And that's just, that's a a crippling crime. It's so sad. It is. And I think it's something that, you know, there's there's plenty of blame to go around. And it's very easy to point our fingers at public officials who haven't made infrastructure, whether it's our, our water infrastructure, energy infrastructure, transportation infrastructure, all these things, um, you know, and haven't made those prevalent political issues. But at the same time, even if they do, I'm not sure that voters would consider that a sexy enough issue to to vote for a political figure who made that a priority. And that's something that as a country, we really have to get serious about both on the public policy side of the house, but also on the, on the voters part. We've got to take a quick commercial break, but when we come back, we have so much more to talk about with this water crisis in Flint, Michigan and the ramifications nationwide. So don't go away folks. There's much more go green radio right after this. News, opinion, Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%? 43%? Or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Hey you, yeah you, are you tired of people asking you what you want to be when you grow up? Well, we can help. What if we gave you the money to start your own business? All you have to do is join the Teen Wealth Club. Even if you have no idea what you want to do, we can help you have the life of your dreams and play by your own rules. We are real, real people who believe that your life can be whatever you want it to be. And we know it works because we have hundreds of other teens just like you who are doing it right now. Check out GlobalTeenWealth.org and start the life of your dreams today. Don't forget to mention Teen Wealth Radio and we'll send you a free gift when you join. Or you can call us at 1-855-866-T. 
Gene. That's 1-855-866-8336. GlobalTeenWealth.org. We're here to get you started on your future. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. In case you're just tuning in, let me catch you up. Our topic today is the water crisis in Flint, Michigan. You've probably seen uh, talk about it on the news. It's been all over the place, but we're really diving deep into the issues that are at hand and what's going on there. Our guest today is Mark Yagi. He's the executive director of Waterkeeper Alliance. And if you want to check out their website, it's great. Don't close this tab in your web browser. Keep listening to us on voiceamerica.com, but open a new tab in your web browser and go to www. Waterkeeper.org. Now, Mark, how do waterkeeper organizations work on the ground in communities when disasters like what's going on in Flint occur? Well, our waterkeepers are effectively boots on the ground and, and on the water, eyes and ears on the water. And they're working every day in their local community to fight for everyone's right to clean water. And we support their efforts with a number of measures. So when a disaster like this occurs where we have a waterkeeper located, we have a rapid response protocol where our staff and the other local waterkeepers can provide on-the-ground support, water quality testing, and other advocacy in these types of situations. It's based on a proven protocol in responding to and remediating some of the worst disasters. So as an example, we often get asked for assistance from our groups that are on the ground. And one example would be about, I guess at this point it was about a year, and almost two years ago, where there was the train that derailed, it was carrying Bakken crude oil, derailed mm-hmm. and spilled 50,000 gallons into the James River in Virginia, and many of the cars exploded in downtown Lynchburg. Mm-hmm. Uh, we immediately started working with our local partners there at the Upper James River Keeper and help them document the spill with still and video images. We start testing the water for pollution, helping them with media outreach, trying to make sure that the truth got out to the public and the unvarnished truth got out. And basically, we were able to hire a local air, a pilot and an airplane to fly above the scene and be able to make sure we can get the press out there and make sure that the community is safe. Mm-hmm. And so that's, that's kind of how our groups work together when we have these disasters. That's fantastic. Now, in the last segment, we were talking about the federal laws that are in place that are supposed to protect us. But, you know, there's something beyond just the letter of the law that's involved in something so critical to survival, which is clean drinking water. I mean, even last year when the Pope put out his encyclical that dealt with environmental issues, he was very clear that clean drinking water and safe drinking water is a right. Um, it's not a privilege, it's a right, you know, and, and a lot of, you know, people outside of the political realm like 
the Pope and other religious leaders and ethical leaders have spoken out on this issue. And I would just like to get your thoughts on this. I mean, besides the legal questions, uh, do state and local governments have an ethical responsibility to provide citizens with clean and safe drinking water? Absolutely. I agree 100% that it's a basic human right to have clean water. And governments need to do everything in their power to uphold that right. And that's in addition to being transparent when they change their drinking water sources and, and transparent in the decisions they, they make and how that affects our right to have clean water. Mm-hmm. They 100% have that responsibility. Mm-hmm. And I'm not sure that's in the handbook, you know, when <laughs> when city council members <laughs> and mayors, you know, and local leaders are sworn in, um, you know, I'm not sure that that's a part of their, you know, their top priorities. There'll always be special interest groups that are pushing for other things. Um, but it's so basic. And I think maybe because for so long, we've had you know, great infrastructure in the United States, the gold standard, and people were so used to for decades turning on the tap and there was clean water that we've kind of taken our eye off the ball and taken that for granted. And I just, I hope that, you know, that's not the case anymore. We need citizen engagement and local leaders who are um, committed to ensuring clean and safe drinking water. I remember even, um, you know, when the coal ash in North Carolina, you know, ended up in the waterways, you know, there there were local leaders that had no idea this was even a possibility, you know, that this this sort of um, infrastructure to hold back the coal ash was anywhere near their water source. So, uh, maybe we can add that to the handbook. <laughs> oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> How is a crisis like this emblematic of the consequences when local leaders seek quick fixes in the face of financial troubles? I mean, financial troubles at the local level are not going away. What are your thoughts on that, Mark? No, they're not going away, but we, we've still got to make decisions that are going to be in the best interests of everyone's health and safety. And these types of cri- this type of crisis really epitomizes what happens when the buck you know, on, on failing infrastructure gets passed and local and state leaders decide to broker what they think are money-saving deals rather than to actually advocate for the infrastructure that's needed to deliver drinking water safely to their mm-hmm. constituents. And it really brings it all back to the need for people to be vigilant and the importance of having someone um, in our case, we, we, you know, we work with our local water keepers, but it's important to have someone in every community who's going to be watchdogging and who's holding government officials and polluters accountable. Mm-hmm. Well, and I was reading just the other day that, um, you know, when the city of Flint switched to the Flint River, that, um, you know, it was not something that was a secret that the Flint River was corrosive and that there was an additive that they could have put into the water that could have alleviated this crisis and the cost would have been something like $100 a day. And now you look at the cost of cleaning up this disaster and in some ways it can never be repaid when you look at the damage that's been done to human health. Um, But you know, these cheap fixes and, and quick fixes really, um, if you don't look at the full cost-benefit analysis, aren't cheap at all. Now, we t- oh, go ahead. Go right right, well, yeah, I guess that move of switching it to the Flint instead of having a sort of a 
quick contract with Detroit until the other drinking water supply was available was, I think, a cost-cutting measure that was expected to save about a million dollars a year. So what's, you say, $100 a day, that's $36,500 a year. Mm-hmm. So you couldn't have trimmed $36,500 a year off that million you were saving? Exactly. Exactly. And and again, you know, even a first-year business student could do a cost-benefit analysis on that and figure that out. And that's what's so disappointing is sometimes when you look at the business acumen that's lacking in some of these decision makers. Now, we have talked a little bit in the last segment, and I want to bring this up again. We talked about infrastructure, and we talk a lot about the need for upgraded infrastructure on Go Green Radio, and not just when it comes to water. We talk about it, um, you know, levees, bridges, roads, transportation systems, you know, um, water and electricity. How much money would it take to modernize our nation's water infrastructure and ensure that it could safely distribute clean water? And who should pay for these efforts? Well, um, that's a good, good question. And you did bring up a good point about, uh, you brought up a great point about your spot on before the break when you talked about how the public doesn't necessarily perceive infrastructure investment as a sexy issue. And I think that that is a major problem with investing in infrastructure because, as you say, it's not as sexy politically. It's just not as sexy politically as it would be to grant for a grand opening of a new sports stadium or mm-hmm. some other architectural triumph. It's, it doesn't provide the ribbon-cutting and baby-kissing photo opportunities those kinds of investments do. So it's often pushed to the bottom of the priority list. But as to your question about how much is it going to cost, it's, there are... Uh, a number of different uh, different estimates. So they say there's about a million miles of water mains across the country, and the American Water Works Association estimates it would cost about a trillion dollars over the next 25 years. Mm-hmm. EPA ca- forecasts it more conservatively at about 330 billion over the next 20 years. Uh, but even so, either one of those estimates is still well above the 1.3 billion dollars that state and local governments are spending annually now on drinking water and wastewater infrastructure. So we're still falling behind. We were heartened last week, I think it was last week or the week before, Governor Cuomo in New York did the State of the State address where he proposed to spend an extra $123 million on environmental projects and $250 million and more for water infrastructure for this coming year in his budget, uh, which is really welcome news. It's not going to be enough for the needs of the state of New York, but it's usually that's a line item that we see either keeping the same or being reduced. And so it was refreshing to see someone take the leadership and increase the amount of money they're going to spend on infrastructure. Well, and it's critical. I mean, not only because, you know, even if our population didn't grow at all, which that's not going to happen. I mean, we're having trouble, clearly, delivering services um, to our current population. But we know, whether it's through birth rate, through immigration, and a combination of the two, that our population will grow. So it's it's critical. It's kind of like, you know, if you're a homeowner, you know that fixing the roof isn't as much fun to do uh, as, you know, redecorating the whole downstairs, but it has to be done. And, and these types of, you know, 
whether it's retrofitting, upgrading, or extending our infrastructure simply needs to be done. And so I'm hopeful that these kinds of conversations will filter out into mainstream political discussions so that all candidates, regardless of, you know, what partisan, you know, part of the aisle they fall down on, will talk about these critical upgrades. What are some other ways that poor infrastructure threatens access to clean and safe drinking water, Mark? Well, you know, we, that's a good question. You know, we have a very aging and failing sewage infrastructure system, which is discharging raw sewage into local waterways. Mm. We still, I'm in New York right now, and we still have a system where it's a combined sewer overflow system where mm-hmm. the storm water and sewer lines come together and go to the sewage treatment plant. Every time it rains more than a quarter of an inch, raw sewage is going into New York Harbor and the Hudson River and, and the surrounding waterways Ooh. to the tune of about 27 billion gallons of raw sewage every year. Um, oh, huge problem there. Yeah. And another threat we have that we've been working on this fall is um, failing infrastructure on our railways where the oil trains cross. You know, there's been a 5,000% increase in the carrying of oil by rail in the past five years. And an explosion over a waterway is that, that is a drinking water resource will have devastating impacts. We did a study with Forest Ethics and Hudson River Keeper and National Network of a lot of our local waterkeeper organizations to put together this report in, in November called Deadly Crossing. And it's about neglected bridges and exploding oil trains. And it, we really, we're looking to explore the condition of our nation's rail infrastructure and how it's being stressed by this increase of oil train traffic. And we mm-hmm. sent about um, waterkeepers from 15 states, investigated uh, potential, documented potential deficiencies at, I think it was 250 railway bridges. Wow. And found that nearly half of them had were there were about four hundred about one hundred and fourteen of those bridges identified areas of serious concern where they were showing signs of stress and decay. Um, there was rotted and crumbling foundations or loose and broken beams, and they also were present when crude oil was going over these bridges, and they could see flexing of the bridge oh, and various my. vibrations and stumping that were causing crumbling of concrete, and so you're going to see more of those James River-type derailments that keep mm-hmm. continuing to happen as this oil... Um, so that's just another infrastructure issue. We're neglecting our railways, our sewage treatment plants, our uh, water infrastructure, and more. Wow. I hate to leave it on that note, but we're going to take a quick commercial break. We'll be back in just a moment with more on what's going on in Flint, Michigan. What are some of the issues that need to be addressed? So don't go away, folks. There's more Go Green Radio right after this. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%, 43%, or 14%? 
Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Do the adventures of Indiana Jones leave you curious about this exotic and unusual profession? If so, don't miss Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. You'll learn about forensics, ancient civilizations, and human origins. Listen to Dr. Schuldenrein and colleagues discuss their excavations and related archaeological topics, ranging from the unique to the sublime, and yes, even the mundane. Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology, live Wednesday, 6 p.m. Eastern, 3 p.m. Pacific Time, on Voice America Variety. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. I'm so glad that you could all tune in. We're talking about water public policy issues and especially in light of what's just happened in Flint, Michigan. And a town of 100,000 people ended up with extremely high levels of lead in their drinking water. And that is going to impact um, that community for a long, long time. That lead exposure doesn't go away, especially in little children. It binds to their very DNA. And the, the symptoms of lead poisoning can can show itself immediately or it can take years for it to show itself. And so this is an unbelievable tragedy that's happened right here in America. And, you know, it's funny... No, it's not funny. It's just ironic that oftentimes you see these types of catastrophes happening in areas that are less affluent um, than maybe your, you know, your San Francisco's or other, you know, more affluent towns. In your opinion, Mark, what role did poverty play in the catastrophe that happened in Flint, Michigan? Well, from what I'm hearing and what I read, it, it seems like it played a large role. And the thing is, I like to I like to quote one of my my friends, our Lake Ontario waterkeeper, Mark Mounts, and he always taught me that you know it's been long been true that money, power, and influence often dictate who gets the short end of the stick on environmental issues. Mm-hmm. And you know, forcing people without much political voice to bear the burden of pollution, disease, and misery is a form, most certainly, a form of racism and injustice. Mm-hmm. And these types of injustices are being perpetrated against our country's most vulnerable populations every day. Well, and and in terms of the population of Flint, Michigan, um, you know, they have a very high uh, poverty rate. How did that 
contribute to this catastrophe? I mean, was it because they were working two or three jobs that they couldn't pay attention? Or um, was it because, you know, they didn't have local leaders that they had elected in charge of uh, their water supply? Give us a little bit more insight as to how you think, you know, poverty was directly connected to this catastrophe. Well, I think that, you know, the, the poverty is it puts it in a situation where people people who are living in low-income low communities often don't have as strong of a political voice as other communities. You could imagine that a an affluent um, community would not, they would not have made that cost-cutting measure where they would force people to drink from the Flint River if mm-hmm. it was an affluent community. There would have been outrage and threats of lawsuits and it would have not, that decision would have been made because mm-hmm. they just don't have, the communities always, often don't have, again, that money, power, and influence and that, that strong political voice that's needed. Well, and I think there's a lot to be said for local control as well. I mean, um, when you see your local city council or water board members or school board members in the grocery store, um, you know, they are really, really... Um, concerned about what people are going to say to them (laughs) when they, you know, meet them over the produce aisle. But when communities, and it's oftentimes very poor communities, have the state come in and take over, and I'm not saying that's the worst thing to do because sometimes that's what's needed to get uh, communities back on track fiscally. But if you have people from outside the community coming in to make the public policy, um, there may be, and I think there's a greater chance for there to be a disconnect between their accountability to the community um, and maybe their accountability is more to the state um, than the local community when that occurs. What other environmental justice issues are facing communities and their access to clean water? What can you tell us about that? Sure. I, and, and to go actually, and to just finish on your, your point, I think you're absolutely right. It's a lot easier, there is the disconnect. It's a lot easier to make the decision from Lansing about what happens in Flint than mm-hmm. it is if you live in the community in Flint. Absolutely. You know, you get, you get, there's a buffer there. Absolutely. Um, we have, I think, other environmental justice issues facing communities. There are a whole host of them. And one of them is we've been investigating, um, coal ash dumps, which mm-hmm. you mentioned before, all over the United States. And we're finding toxic pollution leaking and spilling out of nearly everyone we've investigated. Mm-hmm. We have, I don't have the exact numbers on me at the moment. I know we've investigated between 30 and 40 of these sites and more wow. than 90% of them, we've found discharges of toxic pollution like chromium, cadmium, arsenic, lead, selenium, thallium, other toxic pollutants that are discharging into waterways that, like the Dan River that people are using for swimming or for fishing or for other recreation and for drinking. Wow. And there are now more than 1,400 coal ash dumps uh, containing obviously trillions of tons of toxic waste throughout the U.S. Half of those don't have a liner, and 70% of them are situated in low-income communities. Wow. And there, at least 200 of them are known to have contaminated nearby water. So, you know, 70% of them located in low-income communities. We also have a, one of our campaigns 
So one of our campaigns is working on the coal ash issue. Another issue that is an environmental justice issue is in North Carolina. Um, there are more than 2,000 factory farm operations, industrial hog farm operations, holding about 10 million hogs mm-hmm. in uh, the eastern portion of the state, which are in pro- close proximity to communities with populations that are predominantly African-American, Latino, and Native American. Mm-hmm. And these hog farms that are holding these vast amounts of, of hogs, of swine, the way that they've always treated the waste uh, or dealt with the waste is they've uh, built a gigantic open pit. kind of looks like an Olympic swimming pool, except it's brown. So there's a massive thing like the size of an Olympic swimming pool that's just taking in waste from the hogs. And a hog produces every day produces about 10 times the volume of fecal waste of a human. So you can imagine the volume of waste coming out of these farms. It's getting put into these open pits, which when it rains heavily, they can overflow, they can breach, they can breach into the groundwater. Um, And then they also take it and they spray it onto the fields and they overapply it. When it rains, it goes into the waterways. It causes fish kills and um, it's a threat to people's drinking water. Those, again, are located in minority low-income communities. I've spent time in North Carolina and talking with uh, some of our partners down there that are with environmental justice groups, and they tell me this is a 70, probably a a woman, an African-American woman in her roughly in her 70s, 60s or 70s, that will tell you how she is embarrassed to invite people over to her house because when they get out of the car, their eyes will start burning and their throat will start burning. She can't have... She can't hang her clothes out to dry, so it costs more money because she can't hang her clothes out to dry. She's got to uh, have a washer and a dryer inside of her house because it smells so bad outside. Mm -hmm. And she's stuck in her house most of the time or just leaving the house. You've got to get into your car quickly and get out of there because the smell is just atrocious. Oh, gosh. You know, there's a organization I'm sure you're aware of, the U.S. Conference of Mayors. And again, I would just love for every mayor in America to have a map. Here's where your problem spots are. In your jurisdiction, you know, this is where we've got coal ash. This is where we've got, you know, CAFOs. This is where we have all these different threats to your water supply. And this is your, you know, this is your mandate <laughs> to, to deal with these things because I think that, you know, a lot of elected officials come from the everyday ranks of the community and they don't know. I mean, they, they don't always know where these threats to such vital systems lie. And I would love to see that, you know, handed over in a binder, turnover binder <laughs> between mayors. When it comes to these environmental justice issues, does Waterkeeper Alliance partner with civil rights and religious groups that, you know, we know have an established history of working more broadly on justice issues? Do you guys do that? Yes, absolutely. And um, they, we just, about a year and a half ago, we worked with a number of partner groups in North Carolina, some two environmental justice groups and, and also Earth Justice and some of our water keepers to file a complaint with EPA and their Office of Civil Rights under the under Title Six of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, alleging that the state of North Carolina's lax regulation of its hog waste disposal discriminates against communities of color in eastern North Carolina. 
Mm. And there have been repeated asks of the North Carolina Environmental Agency for stronger protections, and um, those seem to have fallen on deaf ears. So these groups, have we've joined together to try to force EPA's hand to deliver justice to these people. And um, EPA last February accepted the complaint. They can accept or deny the complaint. They accepted it last February and have started the investigation. That investigation is ongoing as to whether uh, North Carolina is uh, violating Title VI of the Civil Rights Act. And we've also worked with um, members of the NCAA or um, NAACP and other faith-based organizations and religious leaders. I was just talking with Reverend Dr. Gerald Gerald L. Durley yesterday. He's down in Georgia and um, used to march with with Dr. King, and he's been really a terrific voice on climate change and environmental justice. And we were just talking about some of those issues yesterday and, and thinking about some initiatives we can undertake going forward. That's fantastic. That's great work, Mark. We're going to take a quick commercial break, but when we come back, we'll talk about ways that we can all get involved in these issues and have a say, have a voice um, in protecting and ensuring that we have clean, safe water, um, both to to recreate in, but most importantly, to consume. So don't go away, folks. There's more Go Green Radio right after this. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%, 43%, or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Conservation starts with us. Learn about environmental concerns each week when you tune in to Our Wild World with host Ellie Weiss. Our show centers on Africa each week and what's being done to save our wildlife, ecology, and ourselves. However, we'll also discuss what's going on closer to home. And most importantly, we'll let you know what can be done in our own backyards by featuring guest experts and featuring your questions and answers. Listen every Monday morning at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Streaming live the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. So glad that you could all join us and so happy to have our guest today, Mark Yagi, who is the Executive Director 
of Waterkeeper Alliance. And again, you know, if you want to check out their website, there's just so much great information on it. Go to www.waterkeeper.org. Now, Mark, water policy is becoming a bigger and bigger issue, though not as, you know, front burner as I'd like, you know, but whether we're talking about drought, um, lead poisoning, algae blooms, or water that's been contaminated by fracking, Americans really can't take our drinking water for granted anymore. So what are some ways that everyday people can get involved in this issue? Well, that's a great question, Jill. And we we discussed a little bit before about how it's, it can be difficult for people to stay on top of everything. Life is busy. People have jobs and kids and um, all sorts of different obligations. And so it's difficult to stay on top of everything. But there are a lot of ways that people can get involved, and both at the local and national level, and and need to you know recognize the importance of being engaged and being involved in one way or another. Because again, this is you're talking about a resource that you need to live, and so we would encourage people to get involved with certainly from our perspective. We encourage people to get involved with their local waterkeeper organization if they have one. You can find if you have one on waterkeeper.org.org, and when you're Working with a local waterkeeper, they can you know, be kept up to speed on what's happening in your community with your drinking water quality or your, or your recreational water quality and how you can take action to protect it, whether it's to sign a petition, to show up at a hearing, um, to do a letter to the editor. There's all sorts of different ways that you could participate from ones that are you know, not a lot of effort to ones if you really want to roll up your sleeves, you can. And there are also opportunities to participate in whether it's a river cleanup or a bay cleanup and various educational opportunities or even fun on the waterway like going rafting, paddling and kayaking. I think that getting on the waterway is one of the best ways to get people engaged in caring about that resource because we really build memories. It's that public or that per, that personal attachment that you have to a waterway. Because you can think back, I don't know if if I don't know what waterway you may have grown up next to or what you like to spend time on, but think about the memories you've built, maybe mm-hmm. going to the beach or kayaking in a lake or swimming in a lake or swimming in a, a creek even. Yeah. And we all know that we know that instinctively you know, being close to water makes us happier and healthier and gives us good memories. And so that, I think, can compel people to take action. And so we encourage people to get in touch with their local group Check it out at waterkeeper.org. If you don't have a waterkeeper, we would certainly love to speak with you about starting one. And so that's locally. I think at the national level, we at Waterkeeper Alliance, we have a lot of campaign and advocacy programs that really can help inform and educate people about important issues related to waterways um, and ways that they can pressure state and federal regulators to better protect them. Mm-hmm. How how do you find out, like if you're just, you know, an average American and you don't know about your own drinking, you know, water and the source of your, uh, of your potable water, how do you find out, you know, what, where do you start in learning about your own local waterways? 
Well, I think one of the best ways is if there's already somebody out there that's doing it and is protecting it. So, again, in our case, I'll say talk to a local waterkeeper. If there's not a waterkeeper, there's probably some sort of organization that is is engaged in some sort of activity, whether it's wetland restoration or waterway cleanups or waterway recreational activities that can start to educate help you educate yourself about those issues Mm -hmm. and by supporting them you can you know they can do a lot of the work for you and be out there being the eyes and ears Mm -hmm. now tell us specifically if somebody finds that they get out on waterkeeper.org and there is a local group that they can affiliate with what kinds of things will they be doing to work on keeping safe clean drinking water available uh, in their local community and to all americans well, it's really going to depend on where they're located and what the issue, what the hot issues are for the community. There are the things can range simply from staying informed to taking action, and that could be we've got you know situations where you want to be able to bring as many people uh, to a hearing as possible because there's a lot of money, there are a lot of deep pockets on the other side. So if someone's proposing a project that could have a, an adverse impact on your local waterway and your drinking water source, they've got deep pockets. They're going to have engineers. They're going to have all sorts of scientists. They're going to say whatever they want them to say. And the only way that we can respond in kind is to fill the room and show that mm-hmm. the people have a voice. And we've got to support that with our own science and our own law and the law as well. But packing those rooms and showing that there's pressure coming from the community is the only way that's going to help mitigate those impacts. And I think that's true on so many issues, and, and it really does, because that is time-intensive, it takes a lot of citizen participation, because the same, you know, 15 people can't be at every meeting. You know, that's um, unrealistic. And so it really does take um, a group of advocates that are really involved. I found, you know, when I first started getting involved in environmental issues, that um, groups like the PTA, you know, people who are predisposed to be concerned about children's health and well-being made great advocates for these types of issues and um, you know there's nothing like filling a hearing room full of moms with babies on their hips and children in strollers to talk about um, these types of issues and the impact that they would have on their kids so sometimes tapping into local community organizations that you know may not be specifically uh, you know focused on environmental issues or water issues they certainly are focused on what's best for you know the children of the community or in the case of you mentioned religious leaders very often times it will be those pastors who are concerned for their flock who will you know be able to speak eloquently to public policymakers about you know the the rights and the needs of the individuals within their communities and so sometimes you know tapping into existing organizations can be extremely effective in making sure that you have the manpower and the woman power um, to to fill those rooms, um, I don't right, know if that's true. you've done that's, that, but that uh, that can be very effective. That's spot on. I think we, you know, that you're you're spot on with the idea of kind of non traditional allies. When you think about, well, it's always these environmental groups working together as partners, but what about other groups that where they've got similar goals, but they might not have the same organizational mission? So when we're doing the 
trying to get the mercury rule passed to get mercury out of coal-fired power plants and other power plants, uh, working with the uh, nursing, you know, some of the public health groups like nursing associations was very useful. Mm-hmm. And another initiative that we've been embarking on is we've got a big initiative out in the Himalayas, which, you know, the Himalayan glaciers mm-hmm. and snow melt feed um, rivers, some of the most important rivers in the world that are supplying water to about half the world's population. We're talking about the Yangtze River, the Yellow River, the Brahmaputra, the Ganges, and all of these. And so we've got this wonderful partnership that we've developed with um, one of the Buddhist lineages and are working with nuns and monks to um, to train them to be water keepers and to give them training on how to um, identify pollution sources and how to have them remediate remedied. And so mm-hmm. it's interesting to follow those different types of non-traditional allies. It absolutely is. And in the case of, of Flint, Michigan, I know that, you know, if you get out on uh, the American Red Cross and other relief organization websites, if you want to be helpful and make sure that those people have um, clean drinking water in the absence of being able to get it out of their tap, there are ways to do that. Um, but the lesson in all of this, I think, is citizen engagement is an absolute must. Um, we'd like to be able to trust our elected officials to always do what they um, think is best for our well-being, but sometimes mistakes will be made. And the more people who are involved in ensuring that the public's well-being and, oh, especially the children's well-being, um, the better. I want to thank you, Mark, and I want to thank Waterkeeper Alliance for joining us today to talk about the importance of water, water public policy and getting involved in that and providing some great ideas for our listeners to get involved. Again, if you want to be a part of Waterkeeper, you can find their website at waterkeeper.org. But it was a pleasure talking with you, Mark. To all of our listeners, thank you so much for joining us. We're going to be here same time, same place next week with more Go Green Radio. Until then, have a wonderful week and do something in your life to go green. Did you get some terrific ideas from today's show? Please join us for more next Friday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, noon Eastern Time. It's Go Green Radio with Jill Buck here on Voice America. Go Green Radio is proudly sponsored by Covanta Energy, a leader in providing renewable energy solutions for a cleaner world. Visit www.covantaenergy.com for more information. We'll see you here next week.